0: Welcome to Interdisciplinary, I'm Cal Cates, and, I'm Kathy Ryan. and you have found yourself listening to Heal Well's healthcare podcast about people who take care of people and all the places and perspectives that lift us up. We love science, we love meaningful dissent, and we love to support our fellow humans in making our world a place that is just, equitable, and loving beyond our own imagining. Thanks for joining us for another rousing conversation with uh, another smart and compassionate guest. Make sure that you go to the social media places and share and like and love interdisciplinary and let all your friends and pets and family members know that you're listening and invite them to listen too. And remember that this season, season three, we are running a Wii contest. Uh, This season runs through the end of August. If you leave us a review online and we read your review online in a future episode during this season, you will be the lucky recipient of either an interdisciplinary mug a t-shirt, or a 30-minute private one-on-one chat with Cal and Kathy about a topic of your choosing. So get out there and tell the world why you listen. As always, we like to start with a little pun. It's hard to choose today, as it always is, I feel like, but I think we'll go with an old standard. Don't trust Adams. They make up everything. Oh, Kathy, you're squinting in pain. It took me a moment.
1: It took me a moment. It,
0: I understand. That's the beauty of the pun. It's like a one, two. Uh, uh, so what's oh. new, Kathy? What?
1: Oh, Yeah, exactly. Oh, whack.
0: Um, what should we know about what's going on in your world at the moment, Kathy?
1: Um, well, um, borders open, borders not open. Trying to figure out if the border is going to be open. Um, we'll see what happens.
0: Excellent. (laughs) Yeah, it's uh, it's madness here. I'm not sure I need to really say much more than that. But we've had some funny uh, sound bites in the news this week with Dr. Fauci just sort of laying it down. And uh, I can't say I'm mad at that. So (laughs) Um, yeah, I look forward to seeing more truth telling happening uh, out there in the world. So today, I'm so excited to welcome our guest, and we will let Ian tell uh, you about himself. Uh, But Ian pretty much gets out there and um, kicks butt in the disability advocacy space and uh, basically just tells the world that people with disabilities are tired of being an afterthought. So uh, without further ado, we'll give Ian the floor to tell us uh, what he does with his uh, spare and not spare time and how he's making the world a better place, and we'll
2: dive in. All right. Well, thanks, Cal. Uh, I appreciate that introduction. Um, I'm trying to kick butt in disability space. Um, you know, um, the disability space sounds like a new episode of something that's going to come on your favorite science fiction uh, podcast or whatever. But anyway, um, I pretty much um i am a 44 year old young man um and i um i have cerebral palsy and i've had cerebral palsy from birth and um i'm not all about labels but i think they help kind of put the conversation in a context and so i um I in my kind of spare time, it's sort of related to my job, but kind of not. Um, I do work in the the medical advocacy space and talk about um, basically um, a patient first perspective um, to have uh, medical treatment. I I know especially here. In the United States, we have all sorts of strains and stresses on the medical system. I'm sure Canada has its own quirks with its systems. Um, And so um, I've been uh, in my free time or as kind of an adjunct to my work, uh, I've been doing some medical advocacy. In the realm of my work, um, I work for the National Disability Rights Network in Washington, D.C. and we are the membership agency of the largest legal-based nonprofit for people with disabilities in the country. We have an office in every state and territory and also one that uh, focuses on Native Americans. Uh, we do all sorts of advocacy, um, whether it be housing, uh, uh, employment. Um, We do a lot of uh, investigations because we want to make sure that people are not being abused and neglected, which is part of our charge in institutional settings, which we are not a big fan of. And um, I work on the mental health grant. And um, I also do some work with other self-advocates uh, and in the area and around the country. And uh, finally, I do just some kind of uh, um, procedural stuff uh, and advising in the PNAs around better ways to deal with the information and referral process, but that that's part of my job as well. So I've kind of got three main areas and then a real passion for the medical space um, as well, because I've had a lot of medical stuff going <laughs> on. And, and it um, has really informed my perspective. Um I'll just end by saying that my college friends called me the the triple threat because I was I was gay, disabled, and left-handed.
1: Oh <laughs> wow! Yeah,
2: yeah, I mean, top that, really. I mean, <laughs> it's rough. Try, try. Mm-hmm. I dare you to try? Anyway, <laughs> uh, so those are things and those inform my perspective as well.
0: Wow. (laughs) So many questions are, are, I mean, I feel like there's so, there's such a poor understanding in the world of people who are not disabled of what it means to be disabled and sort of where to even start. And I think about, you know, the work that we do in teaching healthcare providers, just how to Really get to know the people they're serving, and I—I I wonder what I mean. How do you break through the the serious like cultural misinformation about disabilities and people with disabilities, so that healthcare providers can really engage with them in a in a meaningful and personal way? Like, what are the barriers that you see from a a person to person level?
2: Well, I'll say that. Um, One of the barriers I see um, is that medical professionals almost from moment one are bathed in kind of a culture of let's fix it. Now, that doesn't mean that there aren't some things that I go to the doctor that I don't want the doctor to fix. (laughs) So I am not an anti-fix-it person. But I am an anti-fix-it culture because sometimes we just want to live better lives and we don't want to be non-disabled. So there's this assumption that our goal is to, you know, that I'll rise out of my chair and I'll be non-disabled and that there should be every effort and procedure and therapy and to kind of, I wrote a paper once, the pilgrimage to the ambulatory ideal. And it was just this idea that therapies were just part of this pig this great pilgrimage and process to get you to be normal, damn it. And <laughs> it just, so I think they get stuck by that. And I don't blame. I could do a doctor bashing session, but I don't want to because that's not productive because they're bathed in this stuff. Instead of saying, wow, he has a disability that brings on these dynamics. He's this kind of person. And so therefore our course of treatment is going to be X. There's not a lot of variation. I feel like There are some good doctors um, that are in academia that are trying to push medical schools a little bit to at least uh, do stuff on minority health and sexual health of people with disabilities. so there is some pushing going around, but man, there's just some old thinking that still is, it is just entrenched in there. And, and it's hard um, to to get out and it's hard to convince people that they should want it out. <laughs> <Because> that <laughs> entusion right. is actually holding them back from being the best doctor or practitioner that they can be. Absolutely.
0: Well, and Kathy, I don't know how this translates in Canada, but I know one of the things that holds that solidly in place here is the way that insurance reimbursement is designed and that the sort of outcome-based, and I mean, the outcomes are quite simply fixes. And, you know, the outcome better be this person doesn't have this symptom anymore, and improved quality of life is not a reimbursable outcome in our current structure.
1: <laughs> uh, I think it's exactly the same situation here in Canada. And, you know, it goes back to that fundamental place that we've talked about before in this podcast where when uh, me as a massage therapist begin the session by saying to the patient, what are your goals? What is it that you want from this experience? What are you looking to have support you in how you want to move about in life rather than saying, okay, I need to do this, this, this test and this, that was positive. So now I need to stretch this, do that or whatever, rather than just having that conversation with the human being about what matters to them. And I think that's what needs to change in insurance billing is to start to recognize that exactly as Ian said, it's not about trying to, morph this individual into some kind of cookie cutter norm of society however that is perceived culturally but actually work with the individual to help them achieve what it is that they're looking for
2: yeah i i was uh i was an outlier from the get-go surprise that um um i I quit physical therapy um in about fifth grade or so, the the school-based physical therapy. Um and it was because it was filling fulfilling rather the goals of the physical therapist and not me. Mm. I didn't I didn't want to walk as fast as everybody or or to just totally divorce, get a divorce from my wheelchair. I wanted to um, be social and interact and be with uh, kids on the playground. And a lot of those physical therapy sessions were in those important social sessions. So you had Social times, and so you had parents like mine, my mother primarily, having to make choices, and me, she made the decision with me. That, that okay, we want them to have friends and not have physical therapy. I mean that 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 that's a weird uh, <laughs> thing, but that was a judgment that I had to make. As far as there's only so much time in the day, the school-based physical therapy is kind of in and out. You're kind Mm -hmm. of in and and out. And and the goal, and I think this has changed in physical therapy schools um, in some, at least. The goal was always when I was younger was to get me up out of the wheelchair. The wheelchair was the 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 enemy, and as long as I was upright, then we were doing something right, and, um, and I think that is getting better as far as, hey, we're finding out when we're making people be upright and mobile all the time, and they're in pain, and then they get arthritis, and then they have problems with their shoulders from the manual wheelchair. I mean, there's just different things that you have to explore in the, in the treatment. And in, in my generation of therapy, it was all about walking or Mm -hmm. getting as close to walking as possible. And I just didn't, I, I got it, but I didn't get it. If that makes sense. I, I didn't understand everybody's um, obsession and then as I looked at at um, you know theory and other things later in life, I kind of understood oh this is part of the construct of what it is to be normal and yeah. you know and the more not normal I was and this is what medical schools again and therapy schools need to work on. Is that if I'm not quote, normal or I'm not fitting that normal mold, that doesn't mean that they've failed medically? And there was there's just that that uh, feeling of, again, obsession with fix it. If I'm not there to fix it, then I'm somehow not doing this patient a service. and Like you said, uh, Cal, the insurance. uh, I mean, it it, it's it's truly um, bizarre how the insurance industry (laughs) think about the body and what we need from our bodies and what's best for us. Um, You know, uh, it's wild.
0: Well, and it's so interesting that, you know, when we look at, we've been talking a lot about, um, we've been talking this month in our private community about um, bad research and how bad research leads to bad care plans and just bad social understanding of situations. And I feel like this is another place where we need to be putting research dollars into how does this person contribute to society when we improve their quality of life? That if in the treatment room you can walk three steps, that's who cares, right? Because like you said, also, if my body isn't actually designed for that, you're going to create more symptoms and more challenges. And that really, if you see me for this hour, like really see me and see what's important to me, and we work toward those goals, when I leave therapy, I feel like I can live my life, which means maybe I make it to another appointment that I wanted to do or I get to go see some friends or like, and the cascade of continued quality of life and how that affects the community more broadly and i feel like it it folds into all of this stuff that we're always talking about on the show in terms of like you said you sort of spot that the ableist narrative is detrimental at i mean it, it, that's like the softest word i can give it <laughs> but that it's so insidious because we all do this thing where we want other people to be like us whatever that might be And we don't notice the harm we're doing by, like, I really want to highlight this thing that you've, you've said overtly, but I feel like I really want to like park there for a minute and explore this. I think that most able-bodied people assume that if they could, people living with disabilities would get rid of their disabilities. And obviously you can't speak for all people living with disabilities. We would never ask you to do that, but- Can you say a little bit more about sort of what do you see in the community of people living with disabilities in terms of, you know, the magic wand theory and that like if you could just not have it, is that what you would do? And, you know, how much time do you spend pining for the ability to quote do the things that able-bodied people do?
2: Well, I, I think for me that pining and that uh, has ebbed and flowed throughout my development. And there, there are certain times, I mean, being a teenager in middle school is a nightmare for everyone. And so, you know, when I'm in that social space, the pining may be higher than than now. But the the bottom line is it leads to The issue of um, accommodations and modifications. If I can be accommodated with my disability, it takes away this yearning to be something that I'm not because you can adjust my environment. And that's why I like a lot of disability rights, or excuse me, disability justice. Um, and disability theory, because it looks at why is the problem always on the person and not on the social environment for not being able to provide reasonable accommodations for people in all realms of life? I And I don't know a single person. So I would say that most people with disabilities probably want certain symptoms of their disability to go away. I, I mean, I don't think I can honestly say everybody is just perfectly cool with where they're at and, and living with a disability is just um, totally great. And um, that would not be true. But there's a growing number of people that are saying, Don't ask me about me. Ask me about what is the world around me doing to accommodate me and to make life easier. I mean, for example, um, I'm from Colorado and I live in Washington, D.C. In Colorado, I'm very much more dependent because I don't drive. And there's issues around that I can't drive beyond everybody says get hand controls. For those listening, it's more complicated than hand controls. So let's <laughs> just move on from that. But, <laughs> you know, I can't drive. So I, and there isn't a good public um, transportation infrastructure in Colorado. There just isn't. Yeah. And in Washington, D.C., there is. And so, I mean, it's not the best, but hell, it's a lot better than Colorado. And so, like, I am the same person with the same disability, but in two places that are socially designed differently and are physically designed differently, I am what some would say more impacted and then less impacted. I mean, It would be hard for me to move back to Colorado, not because I don't want to be with my friends that are there or my family, but it would be taking a step back and I would become more dependent, and that has nothing to do with a change of my disability. It's a change of my surroundings. So...
3: Hello, podcast listeners. Just a brief brief pause to tell you about HealWell's upcoming Social Justice in Healthcare Conference. Just Care, Social Justice in Healthcare is a two-day virtual conference that will take place October 9th and 10th of this year. We have a great lineup of really interesting folks who are gonna talk about many aspects of social justice in healthcare. The conference has been approved for eight hours of continuing education credit for multiple healthcare professions, so uh, you, can, you can get continuing healthcare credit and hear from people about topics like health and incarceration, creative solutions to healthcare accessibility, uh, about weight bias in healthcare, about uh, healthcare and disabilities all kinds of excellent topics in this conference. If you're unable to attend in, in real time, you will have access to the recordings for up to a year after the conference is over. So don't let that stop you. And in addition to the two days of quality content and amazing discussions, your conference fee includes a one year membership, to HealWell's online interdisciplinary community so you can continue these conversations and even start new ones. Um, So we hope you'll check that out. That's Just Care, Social Justice in Healthcare, HealWell's two-day virtual conference, and the link will be in the show notes. Thanks.
0: Yeah, we had uh, our guest, uh, we had a guest on recently who was talking uh, in the same way about um, trans people and gay people and, and the way that society looks at the person who is quote, not normal and says like, well, what's wrong with you? And, and that there's never this idea of turning the, to the other side of the coin and saying, you know, and I think, I mean, the CDC says that basically a quarter of Americans are living with a disability. Mm -hmm. And I think when, Most, I would say that my perception is that most able bodied people think disability equals wheelchair, walkers, something really obvious. And that, well, I don't see that many people. So there must not be that many people. So why do we have to like do all this stuff? Because it's not that many people. It's one in four people are living with either a a mobility issue, a cognitive issue. They might be deaf, they might be blind. Like the world is not designed for 25% of the people in it. <laughs> and right. why is this not something that we are considering? I feel like disability gets left out of, you know, everybody now is supercharged on anti-racism and, um, you know, gay rights mm-hmm. and trans rights. And I feel like I want to be like disability, disability, people with disabilities, let's fight for that. I mean, if we're fighting, let's just fight for everybody who has been unseen for centuries. Right. Right. <laughs> um, And I mean, I I just, I struggle with how to bring this front and center because I think it does make able-bodied people uncomfortable. Not that I care about that, (laughs) but I think it is a barrier in terms of, you know, how we move disability rights into the mainstream conversation because it does make able-bodied people squirm. And I don't know how to, how to fix that.
2: I don't know either, except to keep pushing and to keep um, putting people uh, with, with both visible and, quote, invisible disabilities out front and telling their stories. I mean, someone, I don't know what it's like to have fibromyalgia, but you may not notice that someone has fibromyalgia. And they might be in extreme pain and pain that I that I haven't even experienced. And and I don't know that. And and so then they have a harder time getting the accommodations and some of the modifications because well you look good. We have to thing. <laughs> yes, There's yes. So about, well, you look good. And it's like, well,
1: feel like crap.
2: <laughs> feel <laughs> like crap, and and there's this this uh, preoccupation, um, I think, in, in the United States at least, with looking good, in the oh, sense yeah. of make yourself presentable. But it what it's really about. It's really about making that non-disabled person less uncomfortable. That's what it's about. It's it's lowering your symptoms. Don't talk don't talk about that you're in pain too much because then you're a whiner. Right. And we don't do whining. And, <laughs> and uh, don't don't get too uppity about accommodations and modifications because then you're telling us that bodies are fragile and bodies evolve and uh, i hate to say devolve but they do they do (laughs) yes they're made to do that yeah And, and but it's just so i feel for my my brothers and sisters in, in the in the disability community who have to constantly um, explain or um, whereas for better or worse when I wheel into a room there's already a narrative around it now it may not be the narrative I want around it but there's a narrative around it and I have to do a little bit less work than than other folks with invisible disabilities. And I really try not to take that for granted. Yeah. I really,
0: what an yeah. odd privilege. You know, we talk about yeah. how people have, Pri- you have privilege in all these weird little pockets and the idea mm-hmm. that your disability can be seen is somehow privileged compared with someone right. who has symptoms that are just in their head, as I think, you know, fibromyalgia is a right. perfect example. And, right, right. Yeah, yeah. so. No, one of the things that, that I see um, in in our work in hospitals and just, I mean, in the world is sort of this infantilization of people with disabilities. And, and I wonder particularly about, you know, how do you see that? Do you work to combat it? Um, and I would think that as a gay man, you almost get like a double whammy of that sometimes. And <laughs> I'm really uh, horribly curious about that dynamic.
2: Oh, Lord. <laughs> that, 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 that's the, it is the double scoop <laughs> of of just infantilization asexualization right uh, um, um it's almost like uh if i could read what's in non-disabled people's heads sometimes it's like you already make us com- uncomfortable and now we have to imagine you as a sexual being yes. <laughs> Like right. That, like, that is like above and beyond the ability. And then and then you have to imagine sex with the same sex partner. And now you've really gone too far. Right. You've really gone too far and you've made us imagine too many things and admit too many things about the world. I thought when I was younger that that um, when I was ready to come out to myself, which was about 16, and then when I came out to others, which was about 17, I thought, well, I'm going to be part of this community and they get civil rights because we're all getting screwed and all of that. And then it was like, The gay community, I, I need to do more thinking and, and reading about it. I don't want to talk about it a whole lot because I don't. But it's really messed up. And yeah. it's really focused on the normalized and the ambulatory. And if you don't play sports and have ripped muscles, yeah, you, you are not cool. And, and there is not. I think it's getting better but there is not this sense of I'm reaching out to my brothers and sisters who also have, have trouble with injustice. And so we're all in this together. I don't feel that. I don't feel that, especially when the predominant amount of gay bars, at least in Washington, DC, I can't even get into. So, I mean, there isn't those connections being made, and that's a whole dynamic that I've been, so I've been sorely disappointed, because um, I thought I was going to have, now there are some out there, and I have them, and and they get it, and they get the, the crossover, but it's still about bodies and what people do with their bodies, that's causing the discrimination and the, the thing. So there is a connection, but God forbid you, it's not out there. I mean, it's not talked about or it's not admitted at all.
3: Yeah.
0: Yeah. And it is these, it's the fiber of our society. I feel like every, every conversation we have on the show comes down to, these things that we've settled for and agreed are normal and that we are upholding consciously and unconsciously. And there's just such an aversion to the discomfort that will be necessary to break down those structures
3: that we right. just
0: keep like going, no, somebody else will do that. I'm not going to worry about it. But then right. so many of us are suffering and not being seen and not having access. And, and in fact, living shorter lower quality lives. I mean, I think this is the thing that people who, who the small number of people who actually fit into what's been decided to be normal um, don't realize that it's not just like, we just want to be liked. We just want to like be invited to the party. No, we want to not die 20 years earlier than we should because we got crappy care and we're living in like stress all the time.
2: Right, exactly. That this really is... Um, A quality of life issue, not meaning I have enough disposable income for, for, you know, an extra car that not that quality of life. It's actually life. And, um, and um, the amount of stress and just navigating. I, I mean, I'll just speak for myself. The the social world of the gay world and then the social world of being physically disabled sometimes it's just too much and i can't and i can't um i don't deal with or nurture the gay part of myself because Uh. it's just i can't do it now there are other times i can but it is such a a heavy lift, that it's just like, well, I got to concentrate on these symptoms as part of my disability. And that's going to take this amount of energy. So I just don't have the energy to then go and deal with, uh, to be your whole self. Exactly. I mean, like exactly.
0: you know, I want to just say clearly: like society has made it so that each morning you do a little roll call of the parts of yourself, and you're like, "All right, what do I have the chops to handle today? Which parts of me get to
2: come out into the world?" Right. Exactly. And, it, and it's a it's an infuriating process, but it's a necessary one because society isn't ready for the wholesale. Yeah. I think, but that's why I love podcasts like this and and work like this because we have to keep pushing and opening up what that means, that whole um, what society um, can withstand, even though it pisses me off that, that we're so. I mean, we've talked about. White fragility. Well, there's able-bodied fragility, and then there's there's gay difference uh, fragility. And I mean, we we as uh, gay folks don't have a lot to be proud of as far as how we treated the trans community. And so it, we had some stuff when we're talking about reckonings.
3: Yeah, which
2: we are a lot. And sometimes I think we're kind of romanticizing them. But uh, reckonings, there's a lot of those to be had. Yeah. 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 I don't know know what to do except just keep on keeping on. But, But you're right. The consequences can be dire. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Well, and I, 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 maybe this is, you guys can reel me in if this is too far afield, but I I feel like this is, you know, I've been ranting, um, online about how, you know, Jeff Bezos thanked Amazon employees and customers for flying his rich butt to the moon and, and actually not even to the moon to like barely space. Um, but that's another conversation, but, um, that, (sighs) You know, so I've been trying to invite people to, I sort of divorced myself and my household from Amazon like two years ago, and we've been doing okay. (laughs) But all people are ringing in, you know, I'll say, oh, I use this product or I use that product. And like, oh, I tried that and it, it hurt my hands. Or I tried that and the bottle broke. And so it's like, so I guess I'll just go back to shopping at Amazon. And it's like, no, there's probably something else you could try, you know? And I feel like this is this, like, well, I tried to be nice to that guy in the wheelchair and he was a jerk, so you know, screw all disabled people. I'm like, no, dude, you got to keep trying. Like, come on. But we do, we're just looking for the, I I tried it and now I'd like my cookie and I'm going to go back to my, you know, whatever, whatever my privilege is, I'm going to go back in my cocoon of comfort. And that pushing that constant, just even when we feel too tired to, and even when like, you know, just thinking about, And speaking up for, and as people who are not disabled, we have potentially a louder voice because of, I mean, going back to your your comment about whining, you know, if I am, I mean, certainly I'm going to be like the liberal harpy who's like, hi, yep, I'm walking up here on my legs, but what would you do if somebody came in a wheelchair and how would they get in? And I mean, people aren't excited to have that conversation But those are the conversations that we have to start having. I mean, I flew recently and we had just been talking with a friend of ours who uses a motorized wheelchair and the whole trip, I just imagined being her. And I was like, wow, I would never want to travel. Like it's, you know, and isn't it like, like 40 years old or something? There's like this travel, I can't remember the name of the, the, there's some legal accommodation that like airlines are supposed to have enacted a long time ago. And it's still pretty feebly observed, isn't it? I can't remember what it's called.
2: I I can't remember what statute it comes to. There's the um um airline access act, yeah, or something like that. Yeah, and there, in fact, airlines are working to water it down, and not um, uh, because of emotional support animals. That's a whole nother episode. It's a whole uh, other issue, but because some people have taken advantage of that, they they're starting to do to total prohibition on some animals, and so um, it, it's just it's again, don't make us feel uncomfortable, and don't make us, um, and don't make us think too far out of the box. Right. Or spend any money. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> right, right.
1: Even as, though, as long as I don't feel inconvenienced by it or I have to pay for it, then yes, that that's a good idea. We should
2: that's important. Right. <laughs> right. And I would like to thank or, you know, I would wish to hear more thanks from all the people who've used curb cuts to push up their stroller. I'd like to hear more thanks because, It was people in my situation that those were designed for and you've found it convenient for you. So it's just things like it's demystifying what an accommodation is and demystifying what a modification is. That's part of the work, but it's exhausting, which we've talked about. So.
0: And we're not wired for for proactive thinking. You know, I think about the it, it again dovetails with our our work in trying to get massage therapy into the hospital. And, and we always hear, well, it's really expensive. It's actually cheaper to meaningfully incorporate massage because we could really be improving quality of life and the cascade of savings that could come from that. And I feel like this is the exact same situation. If we invested the time and love and energy and money in really caring about all people, we would be not only saving money, but actually probably making better communities and making better lives. And like, you know, it's not going to happen overnight, but we're not studying that at all. We're not actually looking at like what happens when a community thrives. Yeah. And yes, I guess on some level, that's going to support capitalism. And as you have already said, that's another episode. But, you know, we really... Have to stop trying to draw these straight lines between cause and effect and cost and benefit, and really look more broadly at what
2: happens when we just
0: take good care
2: of people. Right. I mean, I often get frustrated because we we talk about we're so siloed in that there's the disability part of the education system, then there's employment, and then there's um, other pieces then there's this general quality of life. Well, maybe the employment would be more accessible and the person could do more things again for our system (laughs) if we actually had a medical system that was responsive to the body, that actually listened to the body because they could do more. But that, it's it's seen as employment is a problem in and of itself education is a problem in and of itself and it's it's not they're all connected and i feel like a lot of us know that but a lot of us don't because it's it's easier to just pass a bill on employment policy than it is to really think about what are we doing to treat and prepare people with disabilities so they can be employed. And maybe part of the answer that rests in the massage room or rests in, in the therapy room for those that want it or need. Yeah. yeah. It. So it it's it's um it's quite it's quite interesting and it's um I I enjoy the work but it again it's exhausting.
0: So yeah, absolutely. We're we're very interested in in the inside job here at Interdisciplinary and, and we really understand that culture eats policy for lunch and that um you know what we really need to do is change culture and and that that starts on an individual level. So if you if you were going to like suggest one or two things that Uh, I'm guessing mostly able-bodied people could do inside themselves, questions they could ask themselves or just things they could start to notice in their world to start to um, bring the disability community perspective into their, even just onto their radar screens. What what do you sort of wish that all able-bodied people would think about or do inside themselves to change, to start to change the culture?
2: Think of yourself as part of a total lifespan, and not as as a person in the moment. Right then, I'm, and I'm not perfect at doing that either. But, but we're gonna. Disability is a minority group that people become part of on a rather regular basis, and that kind of introduction to the disability community is part of aging. So I, I kind of wish people would have a longer lens of looking at life instead of what do I need right now right at the moment? Okay, I I'm fine and I don't have arthritis yet. Yes. So I so I'm still okay with that giant staircase that I'm going to insist that they put on the front porch of my new house. So if, if we just thought about life as a as a whole, whole thing and thought of um, our friends and our families as people who are temporarily able-bodied, I think we would have um, I think we'd have people make more different decisions on housing. I think people would make better decisions um, on even education and just general preparation. If we just looked at ourselves as our whole, we can't do that all the time. I get it. You know, you're, you're in the moment. We're kind of an in-the-moment society anyway, but, but that doesn't <laughs> mean we shouldn't try. And we shouldn't look at this, this is going to affect people with disabilities, i.e. me, because I'm just temporarily not in that community. Yeah. And, and I just wish people would think about that and be like, okay, if I am 70 and I want to gin and tonic and i want to go and i want to go to a darn gay bar what do i want that gay bar to be look looking like not with the gazillion stairs or you know three floors without an elevator so um you know just just a wider perspective is what i just wish that's the magic wand i want to have yeah not fix people but just get that wider perspective of, you know, what am I going to be at 60, at 70? You know, and and we folks with disabilities, usually, I mean, we there's denial among us too because we're human. But we, we're forced to think about the body a lot because our body is speaking to us a lot. And sometimes in ways we don't like. And so I just wish that folks had to be more inside their, their body more and think of that whole lifespan issue instead of instant moments in life. Or that's only going to be, we're only going to have an accessible home for our last home. Well, how do you know when your last home's going to be?
0: Right, or how long you're going to be able-bodied.
2: <laughs> right. You don't know those things. Yeah. And that kind of taking that for granted drives me crazy. So,
1: And I think it just takes a moment to to pause and look around us to be able to see that. And I think that's such an important point, Ian. You've made so many important points in that one about really thinking about life as a continuum and a lifespan. and Perhaps I'm able to do such and such now, but that may not always be the case. And for us as a society to be thinking about how do we create, well, first of all, let's give a crap about each other. Let's start with that. And then how do we create a more livable, um, expansive quality of life for everybody, not just a few select that fit a particular mold?
2: Yeah. Amen to that.
0: Well, and imagine the sea change that would happen if we all actually thought of ourselves as temporarily Uh able-bodied. You know, I mean, it's one of the myths that upholds the bull in our society and and just the lies that keep us trying to look good, trying to feel young, trying to do all the stuff that keeps the machine going. But if we really just woke up every day and went, wow, it's amazing that I can move my whatever today. And that you really just bring gratitude every time you go up the stairs or every time you like are able to open a doorknob or, you know, we just, but people, I mean, we, we do a lot of mortality awareness training at Healwell and we get a lot of pushback. People are like, oh, that sounds like such a downer. And I'm like, no, it's just the truth. I know that it's inconvenient, but it's
2: just real. (laughs) Again, we're addicted to not being offended. Yep, or not be not not being uncomfortable. That's what I mean. I don't mean to not be offended. We are. Um, let me say it again. We're addicted to kind of this social and interpersonal comfort, and we really get mad when people start messing with us with some hard realities. And the thing is, it causes so much pain down the road and even in the moment when we ignore stuff. And it's just, it's like, how how do you, how do you, how do you convey that when we're such an in the moment? I don't know if we're that way as people or if it's totally cultural, probably cultural, Um, you know. I don't know exactly how we combat that, except some of us not buy into it. So.
0: Yeah, and more and more of us not buy into it. Right, exactly, definitely. Yeah. Well, well, thank Is you so be, much.
2: Oh, good. Oh, it, it wouldn't be as uncomfortable if we talked about it more. Right. That's yes, exactly. That's <laughs> yeah. We didn't keep ourselves in this trap. Yes. Like, Ooh, that feels really. Eh. And I'm squirming, but we wouldn't squirm as much if we actually had more candid conversations.
1: Well, or as a culture, if we started to create a space where people could feel comfortable being their whole self.
0: Right. Yeah. Out,
1: out in public.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Oh, so much work to do.
2: Yeah, so much work, but good people doing it. So
0: Absolutely, yes, and a growing community of people who yeah. I think that's just normalizing that this is a way you can live, I think, is is part of the the work that we get to do as advocates. It's like, no, you can really be present to this moment and all the, the suffering and the non-suffering and everything that goes into it and still have a good life.
2: Right, right. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah.
0: I'm so excited, Ian, that you're going to be one of our speakers at our Just Care conference coming up in October. I think our our attendees are just going to love you and your um, perspective and just your truth telling. And uh, yeah, we're really honored
2: that you're going to well, be joining I'm, us. I'm really excited to be part of it. And and yeah, it'll be fun. It'll be fun. Definitely. We can nerd we'll- out again. Yes! Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah.
0: yeah. Well, if if you're not registered, listeners, for the Just Care Conference, uh, Just Care, Social Justice and Healthcare in October, it's a virtual conference, two days. And if you can't be with us live for the conference, if you register, you have access to the recordings for up to a year. So uh, get in there. And your registration actually includes a year membership in uh, HealWell's interdisciplinary community. So it's a heck of a deal. It's eight CEs for most healthcare providers. So if if you need some CEs, that'd be a great place to get them. Uh, thank you for being with us today ian and just for being out in the world and keeping up the the good work
2: no problem thank you very much pal thanks kathy i appreciate it
0: this has been another episode of interdisciplinary thank you for joining us Uh, make sure to go and like and share and comment and do all the things on the social media Leave us a review so that uh, you get sort of entered in our season three contest. If we read your review online, you'll get a mug, a t-shirt, or a 30-minute virtual hangout with me and Kathy about the topic of your choice. So we'll look forward to seeing you next week and keeping you uncomfortable. Thanks, everybody.
3: Interdisciplinary is produced by Healwell. Our theme music is by Harry Pickens. New episodes are available weekly through your favorite podcast outlet. Uh, and you can send us an email at podcast at org. That's podcast at Thanks for listening.